The Old Testament reading is taken from Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 to 5. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and the darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Good afternoon, everybody. That is a quite magnificent start to the Bible, is it not? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Alongside William Shakespeare's To Be or Not To Be, or Arnold Schwarzenegger's I'll Be Back. But here's the thing. As we hear that we're going to be doing a sermon series on Genesis this term, and as we open up this passage this morning, perhaps a whole load of questions start flying around for us. Like, well, where does evolution fit into all this? And do we really believe that the whole of the world was just, just kind of cooked up in six days of 24 hours? And can we even believe in God, a God like this in our scientific age? Well, if those are our questions, I want to say... What if they're not the right questions for us to be asking? What if they're not the questions Genesis is actually trying to answer? And we've got to remember the golden rule of uh, Bible interpretation, um, or, or for the interpretation of any type of literature. The first question we always need to ask is, what type of genre, what type of literature is this? I mean, is Genesis 1 a historical or a scientific account? of the origins of creation? Well, it seems to me no, for the simple reason that there was no human eyewitness around to describe these events. Adam and Eve don't appear until day six, do they? And Moses, who most scholars would say they believe wrote this in the first place, well, he doesn't come along till a long time after. So we mustn't assume that Genesis 1 is some kind of breathless account that a small child might give you of their day if you were to ask them. So first up we had English, uh, and then we had break, uh, and then it was pee, and then we had lunch, and I had chicken nuggets and chips and a muffin, uh, and then we had double mats, which obviously should be accompanied with a, a groan at the end, or at least in my world, it should. Uh, but Genesis 1 isn't like that, I don't think. It, it, I mean, it, it reads more like a song than a scientific textbook, doesn't it? And so it's my opinion that we don't need to read it as God creating in seven periods of 24 hours. Not least because having actually read it, when we get to day seven at the start of um, Genesis chapter two, we find when God rests from having finished creating his universe, that day never ends. It's not the same pattern as it is with the first six days. There was evening and there was morning. No, because we're still living in the seventh day, right now, as God sustains and relates to all that he has made. 
And I say this also because when we use the word day, we, we find actually, when you think about it, in common parlance, we, we use that word metaphorically quite a bit of the time, don't we? Not as a literal 24-hour period. Like maybe, you, well, some of you might <laughs> see your teenagers struggling with their schoolwork, struggling to really get down to it. Like my dad with me, um, loads of times when I was a teenager, and he would say to me, if you don't pull your finger out soon, at the end of the day, you're going to get terrible GCSEs. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> uh, or perhaps you're thinking about the football. Maybe yesterday you heard on a match report, well, at the end of the day at St. James's Park, Newcastle United held on against a resurgent West Ham to sneak the three points. And we know, when they say that on the report, uh, that the match didn't end at midnight. Now, in both cases, it's metaphorical, isn't it? It's figurative. And I think the best way of reading Genesis is to assume that the author has done likewise here. So if day seven stands for the whole time after God has finished creating his universe that we live in now, then each of, the, of days one to six stands for a period or periods of time during which he was creating the universe. Now, there's loads more that I could say about that. But my main reason for mentioning it to start off with is to try and clear away any kind of unnecessary baggage that we might have coming to Genesis chapter 1. So that we can see that the real emphasis here is not the how, but the who of creation. I mean, author doesn't seem to have well, very much interest at all in the mechanics of creation. But his silence there only underlines his real focus. God. It all starts with God, doesn't it? In the beginning, God. Before anything else began, God was. He was already there. God is the one thing that doesn't have a beginning. So to ask, as some folks do, who made God is to completely understand the very nature of God. He's in a different category to the rest of his creation. He wasn't made, he is eternal. He was already existing in the beginning. Because God is in a different category to the rest of his creation, it seems to me that the but you can't prove God exists empirically objection is also irrelevant because he's independent of his creation, outside of time and space. So he's not scientifically discoverable. The Hubble telescope will never pick him up, even on a good day. Here is the eternal God. And in the beginning, at some point in time, when was that? How long ago? Doesn't say. We don't know. But that's not what matters. What matters is that there was a beginning, and our beginning begun with God, or even began with God. It all starts with him. And so therefore, it's all about God also. Statistically, the God word appears 35 times in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. And God said. And God made. And God called. And God saw that it was good. 
God is the dominant figure here, more so than his creation. As one writer has said, to read this chapter with any other thought than God as your primary interest is to misread it. In just the first four words, the Bible tells us that God is the hero of our story. And that is just so, so important for us, isn't it? Because, well, let's face it, we like to think that we're the hero, don't we? We're so self-focused in our, in our view of the world. Like, for example, when you see a, a group photo like uh, this one, I'm going to show you from um, our big day out. Anyone remember that far back? That seems like ages ago, doesn't it? But when you see a photo like that, what do you do? What's the first thing you do? You look for yourself, don't you? Or at least I find that's what I do. You go, oh, gosh, where am I? Do I look like a total lemon? Um, and as I'm consistently starting to ask a little bit more about photos, does my bald spot show in this? And so we talk about my time and my day and my money and my body. And uh, we talk about my goals and my ambitions and my plans for my future. Because we're naturally so self-focused. Whereas Genesis 1 shouts out, it's not about you. It is not about you. It's about God. It's all about God. God is the hero of the story. You did not create yourself. He did. You are only here because God willed you into existence. You see, everything that exists, it, it exists by God and for God, for his purposes to do what he wills for it to do. Just like a galaxy only works around, centered around the sun, so our lives only work centered around God. He's the starting point and the source of all life. And we were made to worship him. So here's what we need to do every day, folks. We need to get up, and whether we're rushing into work, if, if any of you still do that kind of thing, uh, or, or whether you're working from home, or, or working in the home, on the home, managing it and nurturing uh, children, you're not there. You're not to see yourself there as primarily to earn money or to forge a career or even to serve others, actually. You and I, we are there wherever God has put us to live for him and to bring glory to his name in the eyes of the people around us. That's the purpose of our lives. Life is all about him. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to dig in to Genesis chapter 1, just the first two verses, um, and see what this has to tell us about God uh, and what that should do for us in all of our thinking and our acting. But before we do that, we're going to listen to another song together. That's a great prayer, isn't it, to dig into God's word with. So let me uh, take a few moments to briefly underline four key things from uh, this chapter that we need to have as the foundations of our life. Here's the first and most obvious one. God made everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when we talk about the heavens and the earth, that really means and everything in between too. So if you 
have kids, which actually most of you do because that's why you're here this afternoon, because <laughs> you've dropped them off at kids' groups. Um, uh, but if you, if you do have kids, then yeah, you might say to them, I love you from your head to your toes. Actually, maybe you might not say that at all. It's not the kind of thing you would say to your kids. But that's the kind of affectionate chat my kids had to put up with me saying when they were uh, younger. And when I did, they never once turned around to me and looked at me and went, but what about my tummy? Do you love my tummy too? No, because they knew what I meant, and so do you. And the heavens and the earth, it has that sense here too. It means that there is nothing outside of what God has made. He's made it all. Which means that God is not only the maker of everything, but he's the provider of everything. And we see this even more clearly after God makes the first human beings later on in the chapter. As we read, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant Yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And if God created everything, he is God of all departments of life and the provider for all departments. And so we are totally dependent on him for everything. Again, in our our person-centered view of the world, If you don't depend on God, who do you depend on? What alternative God do you turn to when you need something or things go wrong? Who's at the center? Who is in control or at least pretending to be? Well, it's me, isn't it? I try to control things and make things happen. And when the thing's beyond my control, which let's face it is most things, I do the only other thing that's left to me. And I worry. And worrying is trying to control events and people and the future things around me through my thought life as if I could. Which is why Jesus says in his famous Sermon on the Mount, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. And he tells us to look at creation, to look at nature in order to make his point. He goes, come on, guys, look at the birds. (laughs) You know, you don't see them, you know, desperately hoarding stuff and building barns so they can can store up stuff as a security for the future. (laughs) And come on, look at the flowers. Look at the flowers of the field. (laughs) You don't see them, you know, frantically rushing out for a a new item of clothing and standing in front of the mirror for hours and hours, you know, worrying about how they're going to look in front of others. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, oh, you of little faith? In other words, don't you believe that your heavenly Father, who provides in every other department of his creation, is going to provide for you also? Don't, don't you believe, like Genesis 1 tells you, that he made everything? Folks, God is 
He is so gracious, he gives us everything we need and abundantly much more. In fact, he's even given us an antidote for our our anxiety. Here it is, it's just one word, prayer. Because through prayer we express our complete and utter reliance on God. We say, I can't do this, but, but, but I know you can. So I trust in you. Help me to trust in you. So if you find yourself this afternoon being so caught up in your thoughts that actually you're struggling to maybe pay attention in this service this afternoon, you're just eaten up by your worries. Don't turn inward and try and deal with that with your thought life. No, turn outward, upward, and take your thoughts to God in prayer. And be thankful. So important to be thankful, so helpful to be thankful. I think many of us have fallen into the trap over this last year of of focusing so much on the things that we've been deprived of that we fail to see the many things that we still have that God has given us from his hand. Perhaps it might be a good idea to sometime this week, to go for an awe walk. Maybe you've actually had quite enough of walks for one year. I know my kids have. They are not another walk. But next time you go for a walk, maybe it'd be a great idea just to, just to before the Lord, name all the things that you see, all the things he brings to mind that you've got, that he's given you, and say, thank you. Thank you, Lord. He's given you everything. And he's also, therefore, Lord over everything. Let's take another look at verses one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So out of nothing, there's now something. Now there's time, now there's space, there's stuff. And for the original readers of Genesis, that knocked on the head the prevailing thought that in the beginning there was a material world, but it was just chaos, you know, like a, like a teenager's bedroom. But Genesis 1 paints a picture here, though, of, of a God who is effortlessly in control of it all. That's the point of the way he creates by his word. And God said, and it was so. And as we read through the chapter, there's, there's no hint of any, any struggle from God to try and bring it under control. No. No failure to deliver. God commands and it happens. And the upshot of that is that nothing happens in God's world that he couldn't help or that he couldn't see coming. Everything that happens is in some way willed by him and allowed by him. Now, that doesn't remove the problem of why bad things happen. But knowing that God is still, still in control, especially in a pandemic like we've been through, it does remove the terrible burden of just having to shrug our shoulders and go, well, that's just the cookie, where the cookie crumbles. That's just the way it goes. It's just random chaos. Stuff happens. Get over it. And it does give us the comfort of being able to say, well, listen, I don't understand exactly what's going on here. I really don't totally get it, but I know that God is allowing it to happen, and I know that he's good. 
And so it is happening for his good purposes, whatever they may be. And it does give us hope of restoration and renewal for the future, which is a hope that we just cannot have, not for one minute, without a sovereign God. So God is in control. And verse 2 tells us that having created the universe by his spirit, he's present and active moment by moment inside his creation, ordering it and sustaining it and relating to it. And that sense of order is incredibly significant, isn't it? Steve Fuller is a sociology professor at Warwick University, and though he describes himself as a secular humanist, he acknowledges that historically, religion has motivated people to study science. This sense of order means that there is something to explore and investigate. There are patterns there. We don't have a random chance world, because if we did, then science as we know it, it just wouldn't be possible. We wouldn't have science as we know it today if it weren't for monotheism, he argues, reading off references to Newton and Mendel and other colossuses of the scientific world who are Christians. Dawkins, he says, meaning the Oxford professor Richard Dawkins, Dawkins says religion is the root of all evil. Well, even if that were true, it's also the root of all science. Folks, I could throw loads of quotes from non-Christian scientists at you like that this afternoon. And I could also name hundreds of top-class Christian scientists who seem to have no problem engaging in their field of study as well as believing at the same time in a God of creation. Just Google it, Christian scientists, and you'll get a massive list. So it's incredibly ironic, is it not then? that people make science sound as if it is atheistic, almost by definition. Because it's only the fact that moment by moment, God stands behind all of the order and regularity that we see, that science is possible in the first place. Okay, one final foundational plank before we draw stumps. Fourthly, God is personal. I mean, Let's look at who it is who is actually involved in making the world. Well, there, of course, verse one. In the beginning, God. We've seen that time and time again. But what about as we read on into verse two? The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Hmm. So there's God outside of his creation and the spirit of God inside it. But then we skip on to verse 26 And it becomes even more interesting as God comes to the moment of making humanity. And what does he say? Does he say, let me make human beings in my image? No. But let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now that us could well be the we as in, you know, like Queen Victoria famously used used to say, the royal we, we are not amused. But the very next verse suggests that there's more to it than that. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In order to create something that was going to be, that would be his, in his image and reflect his likeness, he made not one human being, but two. 
And sure enough, the New Testament reveals that he is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living together since all eternity in perfect loving relationship. And that's an important final thing to highlight because it's the only thing that makes sense of why we see ourselves as persons and not just animals or biomechanical survival machines, as Dawkins would put it. And it also explains why we're such relational beings, which we felt keenly this year, haven't we? Being apart, why we're so longing to be back in pubs and restaurants and, and church over the coming months. It pretty much explains, it has the explanatory power for why every person and every culture believes that this is a personal and not an impersonal universe. Or to put it in the words of a cheesy pop song, that love is the greatest thing. Even though we can't prove that statement under a microscope or in a test tube. But we can know it, can't we? And we can experience it. Because the God of creation is not just the Lord over all of it, who made it, but he has the capacity to love it and he loves us because he has always been love, living together in the perfect dance of love that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's our God. What a wonderful God. Let me pray as we think that through and celebrate it. Father God, oh, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till we find our rest in you. So help us this day to know you, to rest in you, to fully trust in you. And as we come to know you better, Father, we pray you would help us to long to know you better. And as we do that, may we discover who you are fully and what we're here for, and how to live well for you and for your glory. Pray this in your precious name. Amen.